This is the Adventist World Radio, and you are listening to the Voice of Hope. For more information, please feel free to write to us. Our email address is Bible at awr.org, or you could also call us on WhatsApp at plus one two two four two 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 zero seven seven seven. Hello and welcome to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Researched and written in Indianapolis by Dr. Adrian Peterson and in Los Angeles by Ray Robinson and produced in the studios of WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. I'm Jeff White. This is edition NWS 781 for release on Sunday, February 11th, 2024. Today, call signs, part two, focusing on shortwave call signs. The new worldwide listening guide is available, and DX news from Bangladesh and the Philippines. By the way, we want to wish everyone a very happy World Radio Day, coming up on February 13th. Last week here in WaveScan, Ray Robinson introduced the topic of call signs and how specifically mixed calls containing a combination of numbers and letters came to be assigned. Well, this week he delves further specifically into the history of shortwave call signs. Ray? Thanks, Jeff. I've been interested in all things radio throughout my teen and adult years, and I've always assumed that call signs in those countries which use them for broadcast stations were assigned to the stations themselves. However, I was surprised to learn that just before the middle of the last century, the Government Licensing Authority in the United States issued a decree stating that every shortwave transmitter should be licensed with its own separate call sign. And thus, a station with more than one transmitter would have to have more than one call sign. But even that was rather loosely implemented. As an example, a list of shortwave channels for the RCA station located at Bolinas in California was published in the monthly magazine Radio News for August 1935. And this list shows almost 30 different three-letter call signs, ranging from KEB to KWE. But there's one call sign per channel frequency used, not one call sign per transmitter. It appears that in practice, if a transmitter changed frequency to reach a different target area, it also changed call sign. The same 1935 list shows more than 20 call signs for the large RCA communication station on the East Coast at Rocky Point on Long Island, New York. There, the three-letter call signs run from WAJ down through WQP, though not all of those letters were taken up by the station. Interestingly, when this RCA station at Rocky Point was on the air with radio broadcast programming, an experimental call sign, W2XBJ, was used, regardless of transmitter and regardless of frequency. However, it is true most of the shortwave stations in the United States that were on the air with broadcast programming during the 1930s and 1940s were identified with just one call sign per transmitter. Examples of this form of call sign usage would be W8XK in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, WRUW and WRUL at Situate, Massachusetts, KGEI and KGEX in Belmont, California, 
W4XB in Miami Beach, Florida, and W2XAD and W2XAF in Schenectady, New York. Going northwards into Canada, one authority informs us that the basic call sign for the large RCI shortwave station that used to be located at Sackville, New Brunswick, was CKCX. However, during the earlier part of its history, this shortwave station was on the air with one call sign per each shortwave channel. The CBC International Service, as Radio Canada International was called before 1970, first launched in February 1945 with three new 50-kilowatt shortwave transmitters obtained from RCA in the United States. The call signs used were constructed with four letters, all beginning with CH or CK. The basic call sign CKCX identified both the station and also the shortwave channel 15190 kHz. Over in England, during the 15-year period extending from 1930 to the end of World War II in 1945, the BBC in London used a total of 46 shortwave transmitters installed at eight different locations scattered throughout the different areas of the British Isles, including Northern Ireland. This enormous assemblage of shortwave transmitters ranged in power from 7.5 kilowatts right up to 250 kilowatts. Various call signs were used, but again not with one call sign per transmitter, but rather with one call sign per shortwave channel. These call signs, numbering more than a hundred, ran from GRA to GSZ and GVA to GWZ. Under these circumstances, the BBC operated with maximum flexibility. They could use any transmitter at any location at any desired power level on almost any shortwave channel was therefore impossible for international radio monitors in those days to know just which transmitter at which location they were listening to. Over in Australia, the old AWA shortwave station located at Pennant Hills, an outer suburb of Sydney, New South Wales, was on the air with an interesting mixture of call signs. For example, they operated three different communication transmitters during the middle of the 20th century, and these shortwave units were identified with the internationally recognised Australian call signs VLK, VLM and VLN. However, when AWA Pennant Hills was calling England with communication traffic, they identified with the call sign VLK. When they were calling Java, they used VLJ, and when they were calling New Zealand, they used VLZ, all without regard to the transmitter or even the frequency being used. When Radio Australia was launched at the end of 1939 under the slogan Australia Calling, transmitters VLK and VLM were dedicated to the new broadcast service and they were given new call signs as VLQ and VLQ2. However, even that wasn't consistent because sometimes transmitter VLQ was also on the air with a numeric call sign as VLQ5. In 1939, the 2 kilowatt ABC shortwave transmitter at Lyndhurst, Victoria was used for both the ABC home service as well as Australia calling under the call sign VLR. In mid-1941, an additional 10 kilowatt shortwave transmitter was installed at Lyndhurst, which was inaugurated under the same call sign VLR. But to avoid confusion with two transmitters at the same location using the same call sign, eventually the call sign for the new transmitter was changed, and it became identified as the more familiar VLG. In 1946, another 10 kilowatt shortwave transmitter was installed at Lyndhurst, and this one was identified as VLH. 
In those post-war years, program relays of medium-wave 3AR and 3LO via VLR and VLH were quite regular and consistent for home service coverage throughout Australia. At one stage back then, around mid-morning, both 10kW transmitters were on the air using the callsign VLH on two different shortwave channels, with overlapping scheduling for a quarter of an hour or more. And thus, by that stage, VLH had become more of a programme service on shortwave rather than a transmitter identification. The Shepparton shortwave station broadcast Radio Australia with three transmitters identified as VLA, VLB and VLC. When these transmitters were given a new shortwave channel, a suffix number was added, such as VLA2 on 9615 kHz and VLA3 on 9680 kHz, VLB3 on 11770 kHz and VLB4 on 11810, and VLC9 on 17840 and VLC10 on 21680. However, that system became quite cumbersome, so Radio Australia changed the system in mid-1951 and the suffix numeral indicated the megahertz band, and thus VLA7 was used for any channel in the 7 megahertz 41 meter band, VLB9 for any channel in the 9 megahertz 31 meter band, and VLC11 for any channel in the 11 megahertz 25 meter band. These days, use of call signs throughout the world to designate shortwave transmitters is very much decreasing. The shortwave station Voice of Hope Africa that I help manage in Lusaka, Zambia, has two 100kW transmitters, but they've never been assigned call signs by the licensing authority there. And here in the United States, the FCC currently only allocates one call sign per commercial shortwave station, regardless of how many transmitters are in use. So, for instance, WRMI in Okeechobee, Florida, WBCQ in Monticello, Maine, and WWCR in Nashville, Tennessee all have multiple transmitters, but only one call sign each. Our editor-in-chief, Dr. Adrian Peterson, perhaps harking back to an earlier era, would still prefer a system of identification for shortwave transmitters as one call sign, one transmitter. It seems, however, that particular boat has long since sailed. Back to you, Jeff. Thanks, Ray. That was Ray Robinson at The Voice of Hope in Los Angeles. Next week, Ray plans to start a two-part series bringing us the story of radio broadcasting in a country well-known to DXers, Sweden. He also has some interesting audio clips, so be sure not to miss that one. Last week, we had the opening remarks from the HFCC A24 Shortwave Frequency Coordination Conference in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. We continue our coverage of that event today with an interview I conducted with Steve Palmer and Gary Stanley of Encompass Digital Media. We sat down near the main meeting room at the Royal Chulon Hotel in the center of Kuala Lumpur. I guess, first of all, for people who, are, who aren't who familiar with the uh, High Frequency Coordination Conference, uh, uh, in a word or two, uh, Gary, you want to explain what the HFCC is? It's, it's a forum for... Um international broadcasters to come together, combine their schedules and uh, coordinate their frequencies so that there are no incompatibilities or collisions, we call them. So, you know, if you're trying to broadcast to the same place at the same time on the same frequency, we need to remove those problems so that the listeners can hear a nice, clear service. So, uh, 
members of the broadcasting the community get together twice a year just before each conference begins the a conference uh, in january february uh, uh, is the meeting and then uh, the b conference more or less in august september to plan uh, to coordinate frequencies before the schedule comes out and, and does it work pretty well it, it, it does yes you know there's always going to be slight uh, problems you know it's never it's very difficult to get a clean schedule because there's lots of people wanting to use a limited number of frequencies in each band but uh, the idea here is to try and get rid of the major problems so that the listeners have a nice clear channel to listen to and the vast majority of shortwave listener uh, shortwave uh, stations in the world do participate right yes it's about sort of 80 percent of the world gets uh, involved with this, this this work so and it's pretty vital um, because without it, it would just be a, you know, very, very, you know, there'd be lots of interference mm-hmm. uh, to our channel, to our services. It's an essential tool in ensuring, isn't it, a good reception for the audience, uh, help making sure that listeners who have a particular station that they like to listen to, uh, that they can receive it on the frequency they're expecting to receive it on, in, a, in, in high, you know, high fidelity, nice and clear, without interference. And when these... Uh when, when the stations get together, they, they come up with a, a coordinated schedule in the beginning, because this is a week-long conference. In the beginning, there are what they call collisions, right? Yes. Uh, Gary, did you want to explain mm-hmm. what a collision is? Yeah, so it's, as I mentioned before, it's uh, where two broadcasters are trying to broadcast at the same place, at the same time of day, on the same frequency or adjacent frequencies. And if we allow that to happen, in practice, the receiver will pick up both broadcasts it'll be a bit of a mess. So but by the end of the week, hopefully most of these are worked out, right? Yes, majority are. You know, we, we have quite a few transmissions in Compass, mm-hmm. you know, 300 hours a day we broadcast. It's impossible to get them all completely clear. Mm. But most of the, you know, as long as we can get majority of the bad ones uh, sorted, then we're happy. So what happens when you get here and you find a, a collision? You have a frequency that uh, there's another station on the same frequency or adjacent frequency at the same time, and, and it looks like it could be a problem. What do you do? Well, we, we come prepared. These, these schedules are combined several weeks before the conference starts. We study our collisions, and we prepare solutions before we even arrive in, in KL or wherever the conference is being held. And with everyone here, you can go around and talk to people and, and, and sort of work out solutions, right? <laughs> yes. I mean, if you imagine a, a, a very large room with uh, 80% of the world's international broadcasters in the room, um, everybody is sitting at a table. Uh, but importantly, uh, at the other side of the table, there's a chair facing the broadcaster. So what will happen is you'll see people get up from their table, walk across the room and go and sit down at another broadcaster's table, uh, and they will be resolving a collision. And uh, quite, quite often the two, the two broadcasters will work together to find a solution. And that might involve uh, plotting a solution for the other broadcaster and presenting it to them as a, as a potential alternative. Mm-hmm. Um, or it might involve uh, a bit of negotiation just to work out a solution that works for, for, for both broadcasters. So somebody may change the frequency, somebody may change the time of a broadcast, may change an antenna direction or something like that, right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Okay. That was Steve Palmer and Gary Stanley of Encompass Digital Media speaking with us at the HFCC A24 Coordination Conference in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. We'll have part two of that interview on an upcoming show. Incidentally, the hotel where the conference was held was very close to the largest shopping mall in Malaysia, the Pavilion Mall. A large dragon hung at the entrance to the mall, 
to mark the Chinese New Year 2024, which is the Year of the Dragon. To welcome the Year of the Dragon, Radio Free Asia, RFA, announced its latest QSL card, which shows a dragon. This is RFA's 84th QSL design, and it will be used to confirm all valid RFA reception reports from January through April of 2024. Reception reports are accepted by email at qsl at rfa.org. Presenting a World Radio Day Minute, proclaimed in 2011 by UNESCO and endorsed by the United Nations General Assembly in 2012 as a UN International Day, February 13 is World Radio Day. Did you know that radio is over 100 years old? Actually, radio spans three centuries and two millennia. It emerged in the late 19th century as wireless telegraphy. It thrived in the 20th century as the first mass medium and remains relevant in the 21st century, evolving with digital technology and modern culture. Although Italian inventor Guglielmo Marconi received the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1909 for his major contributions to its development, the actual process of sending signals over the air via electromagnetic waves was predicted as early as the 1860s and invented in stages by brilliant scientists and engineers from all over the world. Did you know that the Eiffel Tower in Paris was involved in the early development of radio? And radio was equally involved in saving the tower from its scheduled demolition shortly after serving its original purpose as a temporary symbol of the 1889 Paris Exposition Universelle, a major world's fair. In 1903, radio telegraphy equipment was installed on the iconic French landmark, giving the giant structure a whole new purpose, especially as a military communications asset and extending its use long enough for people to not only get used to it, but to love it. For many years, the Eiffel Tower's transmitter was one of the most powerful in the world. This has been a World Radio Day Minute from UNESCO. Incidentally, the Eiffel Tower is on the cover of the new 11th edition of the Worldwide Listening Guide, which is now available. The author is John Figliasi, who, besides his editorial role at the North American Shortwave Association, NASWA, is also one of the organizers of the annual Winter SWL Fest in Pennsylvania. The Worldwide Listening Guide is nothing like the World Radio TV Handbook. It's a 168-page spiral-bound book with information on how to tune in local, national, and worldwide radio broadcasts using all of today's listening formats. The guide is particularly geared for North American listeners, but it has a lot of material that's also of interest to international listeners. The basic idea of the book is that in today's world, radio can be heard on various platforms. and That includes international radio broadcasts, which in the past were primarily on shortwave. After a brief explanation of the Eiffel Tower and its radio-related history, the Worldwide Listening Guide starts out with an explanation of the different platforms that can be used today to listen to radio. There's the traditional AM-FM receiver, with or without HD reception capability. There's a multiband shortwave receiver, a Sirius XM satellite radio receiver, and an internet-connected device such as desktop and laptop computers, iPads and tablets, Wi-Fi radios, smartphones, MP3 players, and now smart speakers. All of these devices can receive live streams of radio programming, or they can be used to listen to podcasts on demand. Next in the book is a section about AM radio, with lists of major stations that can be heard in North America from Canada, the U.S., Mexico, and the Caribbean. 
Next is a section about the shortwave station lists stations targeting North America in English. There are only 11 of them nowadays, and many don't even use their own transmitting facilities. The 11 are CGTN Radio from China, KBS World Radio from South Korea, RAI from Argentina, Radio Exterior de España, Radio Havana Cuba, Radio Prague International, Radio Romania International, and Radio Slovakia International, Radio Thailand, The Voice of Korea from North Korea, and The Voice of Turkey. The book has profiles of the non-governmental shortwave stations in the United States, the U.S. Agency for Global Media, and some other shortwave stations that are audible in North America. And there's an article entitled, Is WRMI Creating a New Paradigm for Shortwave? Well, continuing to flip through the Worldwide Listening Guide, there's a section about FM and another about digital platforms such as Sirius XM and Internet Radio. Following that is a section with details of what John calls the Big Six Best English Language Radio Networks in the World, the BBC, ABC Australia, CBC Canada, RTE Ireland, RNZ New Zealand, and NPR in the United States. Then comes a big 60-page listing of programs in English, hour by hour, from 70-some stations, indicating their frequencies, websites, satellite channels, or where they can be heard. It's a massive amount of information in great detail. Then there's another extensive 40-page listing of specific programs that can be heard on these stations, divided into categories with days and times and where to hear them. The categories include programs about things like arts, culture, and history, business and finance, current affairs, environment, documentaries, literature, language lessons, newscasts and news magazines, sports, science and technology, weather, many genres of music, and much more. John Figliazzi's 11th edition of the Worldwide Listening Guide will soon be available on Amazon.com and other Amazon websites for $29.95 U.S. If you're in North America, you can get it right now for $27.95 U.S. from universal-radio.com. That's universal-radio.com. Now we have DX News for you. Happy New Year, dear listeners and radio hobbyists. Welcome you in January 2024 edition of Bangladesh DX Report in Webiscan. This is Salauddin Dollar from Rajshahi, Bangladesh. Glad to be back and thanks for listening. In this year, Bangladesh DX team have decided to issue two new QSL cards for reception report of Bangladesh DX Report in Webiscan. If any of you want to get this QSL card, please send your reception report to dxbangla at the rate gmail.com. Now the receiving log of different radio stations. 9th January, Voice of Turkey, French service, Turkish music was heard at 1128 UTC on 17715 kHz. The SIO code was 444. Radio Romania International, French service, playing music was heard at 1134 UTC on 17800 kHz. The SI code was 333. Marshall Radio Pashto discussion between OM was heard at 1136 UTC on 17860 kHz. The SI code was 
Voice of America, Burmese Service, ID and Frequency Announcement was heard at 1438 UTC on 9335 kHz. FIBA Radio India Gospel Program in Hindi was heard at 1451 UTC on 9540 Adventist World Radio KSDA Agat Nice Song in Kannada was heard at 1502 UTC on 15215 kHz. They code was Vatican Radio Malayalam Service was heard at 1510 UTC on 15490 Mizima Radio Burmese Service discussion was heard at 1220 UTC on 21710 dxbangla dxbangla at the rate gmail.com okay i will come with more dx news in the next edition till then take care salauddin dollar ratshahi bangladesh Thanks for listening to Wayscan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Researched and written in Indianapolis by Adrian Peterson and in Los Angeles by Ray Robinson. Next week, our main feature will be Radio in Sweden, Part 1. 
We'll have more from the HFCC conference in Malaysia and more DX news for you. WaveScan is heard weekly on KSDA in Guam, AWR relays in various locations, WRMI in Florida, WWCR in Tennessee, Voice of Hope Africa in Zambia, and IRRS Italy. Send reception reports directly to the station you're listening to. Reports for KSDA and other AWR sites should go to qsl at awr.org. Other correspondence, not reception reports, can be sent to wavescan at awr.org. I'm Jeff White at WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. Till next week, good listening, everyone. This is the Adventist World Radio, and you are listening to The Voice of Hope. For more information, please feel free to write to us. Our email address is bible at awr.org. Or you could also call us on WhatsApp at plus one two two four two 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 zero seven seven seven. 